0: This is Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Hello, and welcome to Civilly Speaking, OAJ's monthly podcast on practical and timely legal issues. I'm your host, Sean Harris. Our guest today is Susan Richlack from Mentor, Ohio, Lake County. She is a solo practitioner, primarily practicing in the area of probate. And our topic this morning is the intersection of probate law and personal injury law. Susan Richlack? thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Let's start kind of at the beginning, which is usually the best place to start. And when we're talking about an applicant in a wrongful death case or a representative of the estate, how, how should we figure out who is a proper and appropriate person to serve as, a, as the representative?
1: Well, one of the the primary things I would ask practitioners to kind of step back one quick moment and kind of keep in mind when you're making even those initial determinations that the probate estate has to be opened for all purposes. And I get asked the question often, can't I just open it for the purpose of our litigation? And then answer is unfortunately no. So we have to take into consideration everything. So we have to manage the estate just like we would if this were a you know a million dollar estate. So the first key is determining if there is a valid will, and if so, looking at the terms of the will, because within there you're going to have an indication of who is the named executor, has the bond been waived, and so forth. So if there is a will that names a party or a person to be the executor, that's the person who must serve unless that person waives their rights. So that's the first step. And if there are, oftentimes we'll have somebody who wants to be the executor, that's maybe the number two person named. As long as you have a waiver, that works. If there is not a will, then we have to look to the Ohio Revised Code for who can administer an estate. And there's a couple qualifications. First, the person has to be an Ohio resident, and that is mandatory. There's no way around that one. And then there's a listing of family members next of kin who have priority. So a surviving spouse would be first. And then beyond that, it's any next of kin who meet the
0: qualifications to serve. And many times, of course, there's nobody who meets the qualifications to serve.
1: That happens often as well. And sometimes I will be asked to then make my own application. I just did a couple here in Ohio where one, you know, all the family members just happen to live out of state and there's nobody here with Ohio residency, and then another one where the only next of kin was a minor, and that obviously wasn't going to work either. So in that case, when you can have a non-family applicant, usually the courts do scrutinize that a little bit further, but typically I will get waivers from all of the next of kin, even though they themselves can't serve, just to show to the court that they do consent to my being the applicant, and that mm-hmm. typically works well.
0: And I know one of the questions that always comes up in my mind as a, as a personal injury practitioner is when a probate lawyer is serving as the personal representative as well as counsel, how do you kind of make those two roles work?
1: Well, when I'm counsel for the estate as well as being the administrator, it is, It's sort of, there typically is no real issue in the case where there are no assets. And quite often, a lot of these estates are what I call kind of shell estates where they're just set up for litigation only. And in that case, we really just Get the estate open and then from a probate perspective the estate just kind of sits there in limbo until the personal injury attorney obtains the settlement or the case is turned back in, in some fashion. If there are assets then we follow either the will, although typically if I'm the applicant, there hasn't been a will, or the Ohio Revised Code for how we would disperse any assets that there are. So, usually in those cases, I just take extra care to make sure that I'm including the family members along the way in the process with what's going on, just because. Even though they can't serve, they're certainly the beneficiaries of the estate, and the court has certain rules. Obviously, along the way, there's periodic filings that have to be made and notices given to all the beneficiaries so that they keep informed along the way.
0: Yeah, certainly can't help, uh, can't hurt rather to uh, provide more information to the beneficiaries as opposed to less.
1: Yes, yes. And one of the other kind of practitioner's notes in those cases is because in that case I am actually a party, that requires my attendance often at the matters involving the civil litigation also, so I always kind of stress to the practitioners, if you want to kind of minimize my involvement to you know, kind of make some agreements with co-counsel perhaps that maybe for certain things my attendance wouldn't need to be
0: required. Now, Susan, sticking with the topic of, of wrongful death claims and, and estates, and, and we tend to, at least I do in my mind, kind of lump together wrongful death and survivorship, but I gather in in the probate court's mind, there's there are obviously separate claims but they're separate claims and they're meaningful differences between them.
1: Yes, very, very meaningful. That was one of my early on lessons when I I started out working at a personal injury firm and being the designated new kid on the block to handle all the probate things that nobody wanted to. So it was kind of trial by fire in my case. And I realized very quickly as I made some mistakes in those initial filings and not understanding that distinction. So from the probate perspective, any funds that are allocated to a survival claim, so that would be uh, when a person is in an accident, it's the period of time when they were alive and consciously suffered pain. Any portion of proceeds that gets allocated to that type of a claim belongs to the estate. It would be an asset of the estate. And there's two distinct Beneficiary pools, so when we're talking about survivorship claims, those go to the estate and the beneficiaries of the estate are either folks that are named in the will as beneficiaries or if there is no will, then Ohio Revised Code 2105.06, going back to early law school probate days, would tell you who the next of kin are. And those can often be a different Pool of people than the beneficiaries that are designated in the revised code rounds death statute 2125. So you do have to be careful in terms of what you're allocating where. Because the survival claim proceeds are also considered in a state asset that are available for creditors, and if there is a spouse, there's certain spousal elections. Where a spouse has rights to certain proceeds and creditors can also get in. Very often, when you bring the application for approval, the probate court will be asking questions like, you know, was there a survival claim period? Because they're looking at the potential creditors of the estate to make sure that there's a fair amount allocated to that survival claim.
0: And, and let me follow up on what you just said there, because I, I know this is a question that comes up in a lot of these cases. Is it, am I correct, did I hear you correctly, that creditors can get to money in a survival that's allocated to a survival claim but not to a wrongful death claim?
1: Correct. So the wrongful death proceeds, according to the wrongful death statute, are for the benefit and compensation for the loss of those beneficiaries that are specifically outlined in that statute. It does not become a probate asset that's available to creditors. So, for example, I just had an estate where the it was a pure, what I call a pure wrongful death case, the gentleman was driving in a vehicle and was literally decapitated under a truck. Mm -hmm. His death per the death certificate was instantaneous, so there was no survival claim period. So all of the recovery was allocated to the wrongful death beneficiaries. In his estate, he had a house that had to go into foreclosure and a car that got repossessed, and both of those creditors filed claims against the estate for their deficiency balances. And we were able to basically tell them they can't get any of the wrongful death proceeds, even though there was a you know a nice settlement there, because those assets are not available for those creditors.
0: Well, and then if that of course begs the question: then, how is it determined and allocated between the two claims? How much? For, I mean, you can imagine situations where there would be creditors out there, and, and oh, yeah. you right, well-meaning counsel would would wish to shield the settlement funds and yeah. decide to put more into the wrongful death. How, how are we supposed to make that allocation?
1: You know, unfortunately, that wrongful death statute does not provide any formulas, so it really is a matter of in the application process, the fiduciary typically is the party who is going to work with personal injury counsel to propose a settlement allocation to the court. And when doing that, if I'm working, you know, with the attorney, we typically look at, you know, how long was the survival period compared to the wrongful death claim. In cases where the decedent died relatively quickly, then obviously our survival claim allocation is very small. In some of the nursing home cases, however, where you might have had, you know, a client who lived a good long period of time and endured bed sores and whatever else was going on, then your survival claim is going to be a little bit greater. It also, quite frankly, really depends on which county you're practicing in and where you're bringing the application. You mean you mean different effort,
0: probate, different probate judges are different?
1: Oh yes. Ha ha ha. Yeah, I mean it really helps to know, you know, how a particular quarter even within one court, different magistrates might view these issues. Now one practitioner's note, one of the things you know we try to encourage is before you start opening an estate, one way to kind of eliminate some of the creditor's issues is actually to delay the opening of the estate, which I know makes personal injury practitioners very nervous, but creditors of the estate, and I'm setting aside, I'm not discussing right now Medicaid estate recovery and some of the other priority liens, but general creditors of the estate have only six months from the date of death to present a claim. Mm -hmm. And in order to validly present a claim, they basically have to make the claim after the estate is open. So sometimes we will actually delay opening the estate and wait out that six month period. It's not to say that the creditors aren't still gonna come calling, but that gives us the best option to then thereafter deny their claims. So I do encourage folks to do the other parts of your claim, and in some cases, wait that out. And I I think that's a little bit of kind of a malpractice alert, so to speak, because there we've had some claims where the creditor's claims were significant, and the person had actual probate assets also. And if you run and jump and open the estate and put some of those assets in jeopardy, you know, I have a little query there of whether someone could Potentially, if they ever found out, well, wait a minute, if I would have waited to file this, we could have not paid this, you know, $100,000 or whatever it is. So that's one of the things, you know, at the outset, I like people to kind of sit through and consider a little bit of what claims are out there and who has what's hanging out there
0: as far as creditors. Sure. Now, and, and forgive me, Susan, can creditors come into the probate court and challenge an allocation I mean, if uh, if councils decided we're going to allocate more to the wrongful death and less to the survivorship and they somehow get wind of this, can they come in and say, right. we, we think you're trying to do this fraudulently or improperly or right. something like that? I wish I had a black and white answer to that.
1: <laughs> there is a superintendent's rule that talks about giving notice of the settlement approval application to quote-unquote, all-interested parties.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so we do often wonder whether that might be interpreted to include creditors. Again, that might be a situation where if you were proactively kind of managing the probate aspects, you, you can reject a creditor's claim. So let's say you think there's a claim out there or somebody presents a claim. I, as the probate counsel, would send them a rejection of claim and they have a certain period of time within which to file suit on the rejection and challenge my rejection at some point. And if they don't do that within the time frame, and for small creditors or even really mid-range creditors, that would involve a lot of effort on their part. You know, then they've gotta perhaps hire an attorney and file suit to try to dispute my rejection. Right. If they don't do that within the creditors, you know, within their time frame then their claim is forever barred. So it might be wise for practitioners to try to sort out all those creditors' issues and take care of some of that before they make application to approve a settlement, and that way, you know, that creditors' claim would have already been extinguished.
0: Hmm. Well, you mentioned the, this six-month time frame for making claims against an estate in the context of the plaintiff or our clients being deceased. We've also run into situations where the defendant or the tortfeasor is deceased. Talk to us about that six-month timeline in <laughs> regards to uh, filing a, a claim against a deceased defendant.
1: Yes. Well, we can talk, and we should probably talk a little bit about that whole process, too. But in terms of claims, I do get those calls where somebody's in a panic thinking, do I need to get this estate opened within six months, even though maybe your, your statute of limitations period is far from expiring? In that case of a creditor's claim, my opinion is that unless you were trying to get assets of the estate of that decedent, then that creditor's bar isn't going to bar you from, you know, whatever other recovery you have as far as the insurance and so forth. However, I do worry sometimes that maybe some insurance carrier or, or attorney representing them will try to start making that type of a claim. So, again, the sooner you can get ahead of some of these and open an estate and so forth, the better on these defendants' estates. For example, you know, I try to tell practitioners if you have one of those horrible accidents where there's multiple deaths in the accident itself and you know that the decedent has already passed away, you know, there should be huge red flags everywhere on your file that in order to pursue something, you've got to get the defendant's estate open also. In today's world of, as far as probate goes, many people do not need to open an estate for their own purposes. If you have all your assets are joint with the right of survivorship or people these days who just don't have assets, they may not need to open their own estate, and very often I'll get calls from practitioners in a panic because they're going to file suit, and when they do their Lexis search or whatever to update the address, they realize that the defendant is deceased. And in those cases, because you know this is not your client, where we can just call them and get all the waivers and consents and get the estate open quickly, you know, very often it. Can take several months to get all the moving parts together and put together the right notices to be able to get that defendant's estate open. I also get that same question if the action has already been filed and the case is pending, but the defendant dies. Now a suggestion of death is filed, and then the practitioner only has a couple of months to you know get an estate open and get that proper party substituted in. Mm-hmm. And if you you don't mind a little bit more on that, sure. um, you know, when we do that, so my typical process is that I would try to reach out to potential next of kin if we have some information for them, but very often, you know, we don't have good addresses or we don't even know who they are. In those cases, the probate process requires us to do at least three weeks of publication, before they will make an appointment. Now, some courts, there is also a procedure that's kind of what I call a short, quick form called the application to appoint a special administrator. And sometimes, if I'm called at the 11th hour, which happens often, I'm able to get the court to make kind of what I call sort of a temporary appointment of me just for service of process. But then we do have to then jump through all the proper hoops to notify. The family of the defendant and, and go through the proper steps to have a full estate administration open. And in some of those cases, you know, the expense of that can be quite significant. So in smaller cases or, you know, sometimes this could occur just within the context of a personal injury claim where the defendant happens to pass away and you've got a $5,000 or potential $5,000 claim you know, sometimes it's just not cost effective to go through all of that procedure to open an estate to pursue the claim. But if you're calling me at the 11th hour where you don't have time to turn the case back and, you know, do what you need to do, you know, sometimes you've got to just open it anyway.
0: Susan, talk to us about uh, some of the timing issues and other claims that can come up in the probate context as well.
1: So we talked a little bit about the issue of creditor's claims and, and how that impacts and perhaps waiting out that creditor's period. The other issue is really kind of looking at what type of a claim you have and how much case value you put on that to make sure that the amount that you're going to be able to recover is going to be enough to include some of those expenses. And one of the issues that kind of comes up a lot with that is the nursing home cases when we have Medicaid estate recovery. So, in those cases, you know, even if the survival claim is a short one, you know, those lien holders are going to be looking at getting some kind of recovery. So, you know, sometimes we talk about, now, this, waiting out the six months isn't going to necessarily help that issue, but let's say, for example, in the nursing home setting, you know, where you've had a client that is on Medicaid and has been on Medicaid for an extended period of time, you know, we, we've seen, and you've probably seen them, the Medicaid estate recovery bills where, you know, those could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So in those cases, you know, you might look at how quickly am I going to be able to open this estate? Who are the parties that are Going to be able to recover from that? And is there going to be enough money after we try to negotiate that and pay all these expenses off that, you know, it makes sense to do? And in some cases, and in cases, like I said, where it's just an injury claim, you know, very often I will tell the clients, it just may not make sense to pursue this. Or if you have enough time Sometimes you can sort of put the ball back in the client's court a little bit and say, look, you know, we have a potential injury claim that's worth X, Y, Z, amount. I think we've got some pretty significant liens here, other issues. If you want to go and get an estate open and have an executor appointed, you know, then we can talk about what makes sense to do from there.
0: Anything else?
1: One other thing I kind of remind practitioners of is, If you try to do things on your own without knowing some of the probate process and procedure, there are kind of some telltale signs that give the court a heads up that you maybe don't know the probate rules and that tends to irritate the probate judges. So when you're filing your initial application, there is a next of kin form where you need to identify the proper parties who would inherit from the estate not the wrongful death claim, this is just straight probate. And very often I see a lot of extended family members listed on that form and those might be parties that would benefit under a wrongful death but not under the estate. So when the courts review your filings and they start seeing people that don't belong, they kind of have their dander up a little bit about that. And the other thing is with that is that you... Whenever you make subsequent filings in the probate court, the court is going to expect that you serve notice very often on all these people that are listed, half of whom maybe you don't really even need to serve, but sometimes the clerks that are taking those subsequent filings, they're not going to tell you to correct something. They're just going to go with whatever you have on there. So, you know, very often that's sort of a telltale sign. And when the judges are then looking at approving contingency fees you know they're going to be looking to how was the estate administered were things filed properly and timely for you know every estate while it is open there's certain filings that need to be made along the way there's an inventory and an account now some courts will allow you in a case where it's open just for litigation only The courts may allow you not to have to make those filings, but sometimes you have to make an affirmative motion to request that. So again, that's another area where kind of just knowing the probate rules and how the various counties handle those can be helpful. And if you don't make the proper filings, the court will eventually issue a citation to remove the fiduciary. And since the fiduciary is really your client who has authorized you to investigate and pursue the claim, if they get removed and a new administrator is appointed, you know, they could hire their own personal injury counsel. So it's important to kind of know the probate rules. We hear often at our probate committee meetings and when the probate judges speak on this, they do kind of get irritated when attorneys come in and they don't really know the probate process, and they just come in, and from the probate judge's perspective, they think all they care about is getting their fee approved and moving on without kind of having done what they should have done throughout the probate administration. Yeah,
0: And I think you're right. It seems, in, in my experience, that paying attention to individual county local rules and individual judges and magistrates seems all the more important in the probate context as compared to common pleas. Yes.
1: Yes. Like I said, I have had the the privilege of being in probably about 80% of the counties. And for any practitioners who are going to do something on their own and haven't been to a county before, it's really important to try to get some local intel on that. I'm assuming you're going to give my name out at some point. I keep a kind of a master log of all the counties that I've been in, who the friendly clerks are, what the little quirky local customs are, Anyone is always welcome to call if you have a question about a particular county. Sometimes I can you know, give some guidance in terms of what types of fee amounts might get approved and, and how even some of the case expenses we're finding now, some in particular counties, they are just getting really kind of stingy, for lack of a better word, on what kinds of case expenses you can bill. So there's certain counties where... When you submit your application and you have to provide a list of all the deductions that are coming out, you know, they're looking at overnight stays in hotels for depositions and food and, you know, just some of these miscellaneous things. I've had some courts say we're we're not approving that. So it's good, you know, sometimes we do a little audit of the expenses and kind of clean some of those up because I'd rather see the attorney get a full 40% approval on a tough malpractice case, whereas sometimes, quite frankly, if there's a lot of other expenses that the court doesn't like and now their dangers up, and then they're going to say, you know what, you're not getting a 40%.
0: All it takes is one thing.
1: Right. And the same goes for, you know, they know at the outset, again, if, if your filings aren't accurate and so forth and you've, you know, the court has constantly had to send you the nasty green cards and reminders because you don't file anything timely when it comes time to that approval application, you know, the court's going to look at that history.
0: Well, Susan Richlack, this has been wonderful and informative. We thank you very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking.